Hi, this is Charles Fielding Cheatham. I'm a family practice doctor. I did my training at the University of Tennessee and graduated ooh, 30 years ago. Uh, I did my residency in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. And then in 1995, uh, my wife and I went overseas with the International Mission Board, the Southern Baptists. Uh, we began missionary work in Pakistan, and last year we finished up uh, 25 years um, and had to take retirement for some health issues, and we currently reside in Durango, Colorado. My wife is named Michelle. My kids were missionary kids, grew up overseas. Caleb is in his last year of medical school, and Mallory Grace is um, a graphic design artist in, for a church in Albuquerque. Uh, I love uh, interacting with people that are interested in career missions, and so I put my email address down here. It's very easy, chuckandmichelle at gmail.com. Michelle is with two L's. Um, and so if you have any questions related to career missions, if you're interested in career missions, uh, all of our uh, expertise is with Muslims. We worked in Pakistan and India we based out of the Mediterranean and the Middle East for many, many years where I was a health strategy coach helping missionaries learn how to use what we call preach and heal strategies. And we're going to uh, go over a couple of those strategies through some stories today. Um, and then we ended up in Dubai for several years back again as primary church planters trying to use preach and heal strategies among wealthy people. So we've worked among the very, very poor in South Asia, did a lot of work in Northern Africa, also in a little bit in Iran, some in Iraq, some in Afghanistan. Uh, so we have a lot of work experience with Muslims. We have experience uh, having a marriage overseas for 25 years and high pressure situation, raising kids, uh, homeschooling, uh, church planting, mu uh, Muslim evangelism. I'd be happy to answer any kind of questions like that. So you just feel free to write me. And if you have questions for Michelle, you can uh, send it to the same address and I'll forward it to her. Uh, in 2008, I wrote a book about because I was a health strategy consultant and so I was teaching people that were missionaries but with no health background I was teaching them how to use simple health strategies to engage their people in Northern Africa the Middle East some in South Asia and so I wrote a book uh, basically for them and it's called preach and heal it teaches you how to use how to develop and and how to implement health strategies for the purpose of disciple making and church planting. So if you would like to have a free copy of the book, I can send you a PDF file. So just write me at the same address and say, hey, could you send me a copy of Preach and Heal? And I would be happy to do that. And if I remember, I'm going to have the same slide at the end of the presentation. Uh, so it'll have my email address on it. Uh, these are the title of this of this talk is Preach and Heal Stories, and so I'm going to teach you a little bit about strategies uh, by just telling some stories. But first, I'd like to start with a story out of the Bible, and this is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3 and, and part of chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost came 40 days after Jesus had risen from the dead, so just a little over a month. And the apostles, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, and they started speaking in different languages. And they were in Jerusalem, and people were there from every country. And they were saying, you know, how can these guys speak all these languages? And they were praising God, and they were, they were um, telling the gospel. And because of that, you know, miraculous episode, um, uh, 3,000 people came to the Lord. The next chapter chapter 3, and we don't know if it was a day later, a month later, a few months later, but still, it's only been a few months after Jesus rose from the dead. 
And in chapter 3, there is a great preach and heal story. I think the, the very first one among the apostles. And it's a common story that everybody knows. In fact, there's a song about it. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. So Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. And they saw a lame man there who was there every day begging at the temple. And when Peter saw him, he, he looked intently at him. And the man was excited because he thought he was going to get some money. And so he begged for money. And Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have, I will give you. And he reached down and he took the man by the hand and he said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he lifted the man up and the man that was had been born lame and who begged every day stood up on very strong legs and then he started jumping and, and screaming out, I've been healed, I've been healed. And he started praising God. Well, this caused a commotion. A large crowd of people came to see what was happening. They all recognized the man as the guy that sat out in front of the temple and begged. And so they wanted to know what, what happened. And so Peter answered them. And he said, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now notice here, I think this is like second or third sentence. He's already talking about Jesus. And he told them, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, some things happened after that. The, the guys were arrested. They were, they were put in jail, and they were questioned. And, but on ch in chapter 4, there's a great sentence, and it says, But many who heard the message believed. And so this is a great example of the guys began with a healing. Peter reached down. He healed this man. He rose to his feet. And then, and this is the key to all preach and heal strategies, you don't know what God is going to do. We know how to heal, and we're healers. We heal, just like Peter healed. And then after that, if God wants to work, God works. And in this situation... God worked by drawing a large crowd of people, and it said, many who heard the message believed. In fact, it went on to say, the number of disciples grew to 5,000. So in chapter 2, we had 3,000, and by the end of chapter 3, we've had 5,000 disciples. So 2,000 people came to the Lord because of this healing. So I'm going to tell you some stories from my experience um, about different kinds of preach and heal. Oh, they were kind of strategies. But again, they all began with us as healers doing our job of healing, and then we're expecting God to work. And we seize on that moment to, to make disciples and tell people uh, about Jesus. So I want to be begin with a story uh, that happened to me many, many years ago in, in Jordan, out in the desert. Uh, the western part of Jordan against Israel is kind of rainy and green and nice and not so bad. But when you go to the east, it turns into desert, uh, right up against the kind of getting closer to Iraq. And there, But there are many villages out there. And there was one village, and I think it was about 10,000 people, and they were the people of the town were called or their religion was Druze. So this is about the Druze people of Eastern Jordan. And this is a story about empowering other missionaries. So I lived in that country at the time, and I was asked 
to consult and help a single female missionary that had been living in this town of Druze people in eastern Jordan for five years. And she had never seen anybody come to the Lord. And she was doing everything right. She lived there by herself. She prayed all the time. She tried to go out and engage her neighbors. And then she started things like after-school book clubs and vacation Bible school. She tried all kinds of strategies, off and on for five years. She spoke the language fluently. She had really done the hard work, putting in her time, putting in her prayers, but she hadn't seen anybody come to the Lord. And so she asked us, do you think it would help if we had some kind of a, a medical strategy or a health strategy? So we, I said, we'll never know till we try. So we planned to have a free medical clinic and kind of give her all the credit for it. So she would be there as a translator and, and as a hostess hosting this team of doctors. So we got a couple of doctors and we bought a whole bunch of medicine. So we put them in footlockers and we did a free clinic every day from about eight in the morning and it would go until after eight o'clock at night, every night, and we would work so hard. And by the way, the little side strategy on this is when we do this, I call it getting slaughtered for Jesus because we didn't turn anybody down. I said we worked till eight. The clinic closed at eight, but we were there until 10 and 11 o'clock every night. And the next morning we were opening by eight and we kind of had a policy. Let's try to just overdo the love of Jesus. So this young missionary lady and a couple of others were serving uh, tea to everybody in the waiting room and Arabic coffee. And we gave out candy bars to the kids when they came and saw the doctor. And we were really kind to everybody and we gave them the medicines for free. And when people did not, when we didn't have the medication, uh, like I remember one time somebody had headaches and we didn't have any sumatriptan. So we sent somebody to the store and we bought it uh, with money that we had and we gave it, we brought it back and we gave it to them. So it was all free services and it was done in this lady's name. It was, she was the hostess. She was hosting us and she got all the credit for it. And the cool thing was that I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen. We were just healing people all day long. We had a nurse practitioner and an OBGYN, and I was a family practice doctor, and or am a family practice doctor. So we were giving out free care to these people. We did it for a week. They gave us a, a banquet, which was very kind at the end, and we left, and we didn't know what was going to happen. But because of this, he, all these healing services, all of these physical health services that had been given out, um, and we prayed with people all the time, but we didn't really push the gospel because we were visitors there. But she shared the gospel. Over the next couple of weeks, she was invited into home after home after home where she was able to share the gospel. And she told us, when Drew's people invite you to the home, there can be 40 people there. There could be 30, 40, 50 people there sometime because the families are extended and they all stay in the same town. And she shared the gospel over and over. And over the next six months, she saw 16 house churches started. So this is a preach and heal strategy that I call empowering other missionaries because this lady was a great missionary, but she just kind of needed to turn the corner. And Health Strategies does that. And I'm going to put in a plug for Health Strategies right now because I want you to realize health strategies are not like other missionary strategies. I mean, there are sports strategies and there are English as a second language strategies and there are business strategies. And, and I think these are, all, these are all fine, but you don't find those in the Bible, but you find healing in the Bible. So all through... Uh, the Gospels, Jesus is on several ex situ uh, examples of Jesus telling his disciples, he sends them out to preach and to heal. And then he, um, we see the continuation of this 
on in the book of Acts with Peter and later with Paul, and we see God using healing as a way to get people's attention. So through, through physical healing, it leads to spiritual healing. So that was a great example among the Druze people of Eastern Jordan. This is among this story is among the Kashmiri people of India, and this was my very first assignment. So way back in 1995, uh, we landed in Pakistan. We were there for two years. We learned the language, but we got kicked out of Pakistan. And our people was the Kashmiri people, and they were in a restricted area. We were not missionaries. I was a medical doctor, you know, working for a humanitarian aid uh, organization. But we were kicked out uh, because we were in this very politically, very sensitive area. And so we decided to go around to the Kashmiri people on the India side of the border, where the majority of people were living. And that's actually, we were working with the refugees in Pakistan. But the Kashmiri area was in conflict at that time. Um, it's been in conflict for over 60 years now. In fact, on some maps, it's just called disputed territories. Because Pakistan, India, and China all say that it's their territory. So there were some bombs and there were a lot of guns and there was a lot of conflict. And every family had stories about how their, um, their livelihood had been destroyed by war, how they had lost family members um, through by being caught in the crossfire. There were bombs. Not, not a lot while we were there, but these people had lived through terrible times and they had turned to Allah because they were all Muslim, and they had prayed, but God, uh, Allah didn't answer their prayers. And so many people turned to Jesus. They found Bibles. They, they, they all had miracle stories. So when we landed, there was um, like just one other family there. That it was a missionary. He was working on a business visa, and he had been there a couple of years. And we brought came in with a team, and we had two doctors, a nurse midwife, and a veterinarian. And we were all close friends, um, and we set out to heal the hurting people up in the mountains and to make disciples. We had been there less than a month, and a guy, two guys came to my door, and they knocked, and they said, Dr. Chuck, we want to start the first ever church among Kashmiri people. And I said, what makes you think I'm a Christian? And they said, well, all of our doctors have left and gone to Canada and America to escape the war because they had money. But here you come with all these other doctors and your children, and you've moved into a war zone, and uh, you've got to be, you, you'd have to be a Christian. So I said, well, yeah, I guess you got me. Come on in. And I listened to these guys' stories and it was amazing how they had come to the Lord and they had found hope in Jesus and they loved their Bibles. And um, one of them had been baptized. The other one uh, we helped baptize later. Uh, I actually let the first guy baptize him. And so maybe I was witness to the first Kashmiri ever being baptized by a Kashmiri in Kashmiri language. Um, but so this story is about em empowering national disciples to multiply. By the way, like, Ten days later, two more guys came to my house, said almost the exact same thing. We are Christians. We came to Jesus during the conflict. Uh, we we're under a lot of persecution, but we want our uh, the people of our nation, all of our neighbors and the other communities who are suffering, we want them to know about the hope that we have in Jesus. So we did not exactly, we weren't church planning experts. I mean, we'd been on the field, you know, two and a half, three years. And uh, we didn't know anything about strategy. We didn't have anything, we didn't have any experience. But we were doctors and veterinarians and a nurse midwife. And so we knew how to heal. So again, we started with what we knew how to do. And this is a biblical um, command by Jesus to heal, to care for the needy and to heal the sick. And so we started going up into the mountains to heal. Well, I speak Urdu, not that great, but passable. But the people up in the mountains weren't educated. They only spoke Kashmiri. 
So we needed some translators to go with us. So I asked some of these guys that had come to my house, will two of y'all come with us up in the mountains and act as translators? We're going to do a free medical clinic. So these guys said yes. So that's the pattern that we began. We gave out free medicines. And guys, some, some doctors charge a little bit for medical visits and things like that. But we were not able to do that. I don't know if it's good strategy or not. Some people say you have to charge or you're taken for granted. We couldn't do that because our agreement with the government was we are humanitarian aid workers and we are here to serve the people. And that means that we give it give out humanitarian aid for no charge. So we weren't on missionary visas. We were um, NGO workers, non-governmental organization workers. So we got slaughtered for Jesus again. And I mean, this always pays off. Just just get killed. Work as hard as you can. And they'll, they've never seen anything like it. They've never seen doctors and nurses and physical therapists work that hard. And the, the, like the Holy Spirit flows through you. So you don't get as tired. You don't get as run down. You're running off of, the, of adrenaline and, and the power of the Holy Ghost. And we saw patient after patient, adults and, 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 and pregnant women and children. And we did this actually for several months the the translators disciples on the way home it would take us two hours sometime to drive up in the mountains so we'd leave at 5 30 in the morning they would drive with us after dark coming back and then we'd start it up the next day and on the road they would ask us all kinds of questions and we would answer their questions about how to be a follower of jesus but primarily we modeled to them. This is what a disciple does. A disciple cares about the needy. They care about those that have been marginalized and, and downtrodden and cut off uh, just exactly the way that Jesus did it. And so they saw us do it. And then they saw us several times awkwardly try to share the gospel. And they learned how to do it themselves in a cashmere way. And so after several months, we saw these guys sharing the gospel, I, I would did, did say, hey, this person uh, wants to know, you know, how I'm forgiven from sins. I didn't ask that question. The Kashmiri guy did that. And then he was kind of using me as a buffer to kind of answer the question. And so I'd say, well, why don't you tell them a story about Adam and Eve and where sin came from? Well, they'd heard it so many times they knew how to tell it. And through this method, by doing like little bitty things, they learned how to share the gospel, and they started sharing among their neighbors and among their cousins, and we shared up in the mountains, and we saw many, many Kashmiris come to the Lord. We did not pay these translators. That was one of our agreements with them was we said, look, someday, since I'd been kicked out of one country, I knew you could get kicked out. And so I said, someday we're going to be gone, but you guys are going to be here forever, and these are your people and your uh, community, and they're your responsibility, but we're here to help as much as we can. But if I give you money, someday they're going to ask you, how much did that American guy pay you to become a Christian? And, and they were like, oh, never give me money. I don't want to ruin my witness. And so they were able to tell people, I come here and I do this and I work really hard because I'm a follower of Jesus and this is what we do. We care for others. So just to let you know, I have no idea how these guys fed themselves. Uh, nobody could get jobs. Um, they, their family members had cut them off because they were Christians. They helped each other a lot, but we didn't pay them. And I still get emails from these guys and Facebook from these guys. And 30 years later, they're still following Jesus. The church in Kashmir is still growing. Um, many, many house churches were started, I would go into, you know, every once in a while they'd invite me to a house church meeting and there'd be you know, five or six people there as all, well. but they would lay their hands on a map of Kashmir and they would pray for all the different regions that still did not have a house church and they were trying to come up with ways to advance the gospel across their entire region. That's the reason I call this empowering national disciples to multiply because when a, when a person comes to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is inside of them, and the Holy Spirit 
wants the knowledge of his glory to spread across the entire region. But there are some a lot of difficulties in that uh, in Muslim areas, in closed countries. And so uh, these guys and women later really wanted to spread the gospel, but they only knew people in their, you know, immediate neighborhood. They didn't know people up in the mountains, and they didn't have any way of taking the gospel up there. And they didn't exactly know how to share the gospel. So by doing the medical clinics and by modeling to them um, gospel telling and disciple making, uh, these national disciples, we acted as a, like a conduit to, to advance the gospel from the capital city of Srinagar up into all the different mountain areas. So we were an excuse, like I have a friend says, we're the bait and they're the hook. So we were the bait. We were brought people in through healing and then they would share the gospel that day or they would have an excuse to come back later. Another story related to Kashmir is just that one day I was in one of these villages and um, God was really moving in that area. And I've worked in a lot of Muslim areas where just we would do everything the same and nobody would come to the Lord. But in Kashmir, probably because of the war and um, just all the difficulties that came with that, people were seekers. People were humble. People would pray with us. People would listen to us. And so one day I had a translator with me and I went into a very poor village and I went around to several houses and did free medical care, and I was teaching some health lessons. And we were invited into a house, a little brick uh, house, no plaster on the walls, dirt floor, no glass in the windows, just burlap hanging in the windows. There's a big wooden post, like a tree that had, take, had the bark taken off, kind of holding up the middle of the house. And uh, I decided to share the gospel, and I had a great born-again, uh, you know, Muslim background disciple with me. And uh, so I asked the people, like, do you know where all this pain and this suffering came from? And they're like, no, we, we really want to know. And I said, well, have you ever read the Old Testament? And I said this knowing that everybody is illiterate. So they said, no, we would really, you know, they want to know what's in these books. I wish they were readers. And so I said, well, let me you know, tell you the story. And so I told, I walked through the gospel. I started, it started with, you know, where did sin come from? Where did the, there's a, a curse that's placed on the earth. Um, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And so I told them the story about Adam and Eve. And I told them the story about how God placed a curse on the earth. And then I walked through about how God through all the prophets promised that he would send a curse breaker someday. This would be a Messiah. He would be a savior for the people. And then I, and I explained that, you know, all the war and, and all the pain and all the tuberculosis and all the disease and, and all the um, death comes because of the curse. But Jesus is a curse breaker and he, he's going to, well, I didn't tell him it was Jesus at first, but I told him God promised to send a curse breaker. And then I told the story about how Jesus was born, and and they got really really happy because I I'm you know I do a ton of backstory of, of making it sound really bad through the Old Testament times of all the trials that people went through, and that how God continued to send prophets, and the prophets would tell more and more details about how God would someday send someone to break the curse, and I told him about Jesus, and I told him about how he cared for the poor, and about how he was taught about love and forgiveness, and about how he healed people, and about how he was a great teacher. And then I talked about how the religious leaders became jealous, and they crucified Jesus. And then I realized these people have no idea what I mean by the word crucified, and they don't know what a cross is. They've never even seen one hanging around a lady's neck. You know, usually women wear little crosses in America, so at least people have some frame of reference. These people did not know what a cross was. So I put my hands around the post in the middle, and I said they took a tree that was this big, and then they laid it down, 
and then they nailed a crossbar to the sides of that. And then I laid down on the floor and I put my arms out and I said, and then they took big nails, they put his arms on the crossbar and they nailed his arms into the crossbar. And when I told this part, everyone, five out of six people, started wailing, crying. And I kept, I said, then they put the nail through his legs and then they lifted it up and he hung there in the air. And this was a way to, uh, to execute Jesus. And they were crying and crying and they were saying he didn't do anything wrong. And of course the, um, the, uh, I don't want to tell you the guy's name. My national disciple friend was translating for me back and forth, and he was an amazing translator, and he knew how to tell a story. So I was telling it in English. But I told him about the crucifixion, and then I told him about the resurrection, and I told him about this was God's way of opening the door to heaven. And I asked them, um, you know, if if any of them would like to make Jesus their Savior and pray a prayer of repentance and then they would receive the Holy Spirit of God and they would forgive receive forgiveness of sins and five out of the six Muslims which is the I think the only time in 25 years I've ever seen a room full of Muslims repent and come to Christ all at once but five out of six uh, came to Christ and my national the uh, disciple guy the Muslim background disciple, he was able to go back several times and help them to understand uh, about Jesus and about salvation and about prayer and about baptism and they couldn't they couldn't uh, read the Bible and so he was like I was kind of the bait and he was the hook. He brought them in through his translation and then through making of disciples. So that's a great story of how to empower national disciples to multiply uh, using a preach and heal strategy. The last story I want to tell you is about the fur people of Western Sudan. So all the peoples that I've mentioned are unengaged, unreached people groups. The Kashmiris are, are fairly engaged now, but they're unreached people groups. Um, when we would go in the mountains in Kashmir, you could take a thousand people and maybe one of them, probably none of them, had ever shaken hands with a Christian, had ever had any opportunity to hear the gospel. So they're just completely cut off from the gospel. They, because of their the war and poverty and the mountainous region, um, the Druze, because they were out in the desert and it's a restricted country. And the Fur people are out in the Sahara Desert. Uh, you've heard about the war in Darfur. So Darfur means house of the fur. So fur is the is the largest people group in Darfur. There are over a million fur people. And at the time that we were working there, gosh, I don't know if there were any known disciples. I mean, there may have been half a dozen, you know, out of a million people. But in the desert area, and we had to take a helicopter to fly into this. And again, it was kind of where was still conflict. It was kind of a war zone a little bit. There's a lot of guns. Um, and uh, the people were just completely cut off from health services and they were cut off from the gospel. And so there were no disciples to empower. I mean, I wish that we could go in and find a missionary that spoke fur and help him or her to multiply, or we could have found uh, one or two fur, you know, man and woman, and we could teach them how to share the gospel with their families and teach them how to multiply. But there just, there weren't any believers. So this strategy is called zero to one. And when our work among Muslims, and I'm sure it's the same among Hindus and communists and, and others, uh, Buddhists, getting from zero disciples to the first one is the toughest. It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of patience, and a lot of faith. And and you want to blame yourself, and you just want to say, oh, I've been here for five years and nobody has come to the Lord if I was a better missionary. But you shouldn't put that on your back, because people come to Christ through the drawing and the power of the Holy Spirit. You 
you're doing your job by showing up. So if you show up and you try to communicate the gospel and you help the needy through health service, stuff like that, you're doing about everything you can do. And sometimes you get from zero to one. It takes a long time, five and 10 years. And sometimes it's fairly, it takes, it's a lot faster. So this is a good story of when it, it went well out in the desert of Darfur. Um, we, I was the only doctor, and so uh, I did have some nurses, and we didn't know how to get started. So again, I started with a free clinic, and I was getting slaughtered for Jesus. And my, I don't like getting slaughtered for Jesus. I think I might be a little bit lazy uh, compared to most doctors. So I didn't want to do this for years and years. And besides, I was a visitor. My family was in Jordan, and I went in on a short-term basis, and all I knew really how to get started was to do a free medical clinic. But I did not feel like a free medical clinic was the smart way to share the gospel because you're getting slaughtered for Jesus all day long and then you go to bed at night. So I was trying to transition from providing primary health care services to doing preventive medicine. Uh, there were several young people in their 20s that were there on a two-year missionary uh, journey and uh, I thought if I can turn them into community health workers where they could teach about, um, you know, how to treat eye infections and how to prevent disease and how to help with malnutrition. So if, if I could help them uh, with some setting up a community health uh, program, you know, that, that was my plan. So for several months, for, no, I'm sorry, it was, uh, yeah, three months, uh, my family lived in Sudan, and I would travel in with a nurse um, by helicopter, and we would go in and provide these primary medical services, and I did it for three months, and then the rainy season came, and we didn't see anybody come to the Lord. There was really no opportunity to share the gospel, just because we were working so hard, um, and then we went away for the rainy season. And that was about three or four months. And in October, I decided to leave my family in Jordan and go back for a month and see if I could help with the community health program that would, they would be starting in, you know, in the fall. So I went back in, the, in October for, for the whole month, and I, we were not going to provide medical services. For one thing... Uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, had moved. This is an answer to my prayer. They had moved into the town and they said, We're smarter and better than you. We're going to be the medical clinic. And I said, Oh, yeah, you're right. You're smarter and better, better than us. You get slaughtered for a while. So we turned the primary, you know, family practice over to them and we started doing community health. And by the way, they told us over and over, community health is worthless. Preventive medicine doesn't do any good. These people can't learn. So we started having meetings of large gatherings of men and then of women, and we would teach them health lessons. And this is why it was a way of transition away from being medical you know, providers to uh, try to teach preventive medicine. On the, in the first week uh, we went into a village, I'm sorry, the village that we had helicoptered into. We went into a restaurant, we sat down, you know, me and like four or five of these young people all in their 20s, and uh, this African lady came up and she was actually trying to hug me, and I'm a man and she's a woman, it just didn't seem right, I've never seen that before, and she was saying, oh, Dr. Chuck, Dr. Chuck, thank you, thank you so much for coming back, because so she had remembered me from being the doctor there before, and she's like, thank you for remembering me, and all these kinds of things, and we were in a restaurant, and I said, you know, please sit down with us, and we sat down, and she, she kept saying thank you, and I said, like I always say, please don't thank me, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and he knows about your suffering, and uh, he has sent us here as his representatives to care for you. So give your thanks to Jesus. And it's always nice because people, will, they'll tell each other, oh, Jesus hears our prayers. Jesus cares about us because Muslims believe in Jesus. They just don't believe he's the Messiah. So while we were sitting there, I shared the gospel with her, and she 
broke out bawling, just sobbing, sobbing, sobbing in this little restaurant area. Now, we're, when I say restaurant, um, the walls were about four feet tall of rock, and then you had to stoop to go into a round tukul, a round African uh, hut kind of thing. And there was a sheet, and it was to separate, they had put it up just for us, to separate the men's area, because ordinarily only men go to restaurants. So they had men on one side, and they had us on the other side, because there were some uh, girls, uh, some women on among these young people on this church planting team. And I was sitting there right next to the sheet, and I was leaning next to, I was leaning against a guy who was on the other side, and I shared the gospel openly, and I'm like, eh, if we get kicked out, we get kicked out. And she, this lady, she told us to call her, call her mama, but her real name is Miriam. And she cried and cried and cried, and so I asked her if she would like to repent and put her faith in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden she quit crying and she thought about it because she knew this is this is a you know uh, treasonous. This is going against everything she had ever been taught, everybody in the village. And she said, I want to think about it. Give me a day. I'll, I'll come see you tomorrow. So we thought that was great. We left that night. We sat around a fire and uh, she didn't come. And then the next night, she didn't, or the next day, she didn't come. But that night, a guy came to the fire and he said, Dr. Chuck, Dr. Chuck, I want to talk to you. And he said, were you in a restaurant telling people about Jesus two days ago? And I thought, oh gosh, now I've done it. I mean, I'm going to be arrested. Maybe these young people are going to be arrested. At the very least, we'll all be kicked out. That'll be the end of everything. But, you know, what can I do? I mean, I, I had to share the gospel, so I shared the gospel, and I was kind of going back and forth with myself. And I said, yes, that was me. And he said, we were sitting down drinking some tea, sitting by a fire. And he said, that was me on the other side of the sheet that you were leaning against. I had my ear next to your mouth and I heard every word that you said. And I believe all of it. I want to become a follower of Jesus. So I thought Miriam would be the first one in the kingdom, but that guy uh, was the first one in the kingdom Miriam came the next day and she cried and cried and cried and she repented and and uh, and made a profession of faith and uh, the next day we had to fly out and, and we couldn't baptize either one of these people because there was no water in the creek. I mean, we're talking two inches of water uh, and right after the rainy season and there just wasn't anything left. It had not been a good rainy season and um, I didn't. You know, I didn't know what to do about baptism, baptizing them. And I was getting on the helicopter and Miriam, mama came running up and she said, who will baptize me? And I thought, I don't even remember telling you about baptism. How do they, how do they know this stuff? But apparently we had mentioned it and the Holy Spirit kind of stretches, kind of straightens out everything. And, and she had understood. And so there was an African lady who had been acting as a translator. And I said, Thana will come back and she'll baptize you because, uh, an African woman should be baptized by another African woman. And so she was very happy. And, you know, that that was in 2007, I think. And I never heard from her until 2014. I had a friend tell me, hey, I was at a conference on the island of Malta, which is out in the Mediterranean Sea. I've never been there. And it was a, it was a conference for... Africans that were North Northern African Muslim background disciples who considered themselves, you know, disciple makers and church planters and church leaders. And Mama was there, and I did not know that Mama was literate, but she was carrying a Bible and she had a photograph of our team in the Bible. And my team said, "Hey, there was a lady named Miriam who was asking about you at the." Uh, conference in Malta. And so I, um, anyway, after seven years, we found out that this lady, zero to one with her and the, and the other guy who we called David, uh, we, we actually went from zero to two. And for at least in Miriam's case, um, she still 
felt the power of the Holy Spirit. She still had faith in Jesus, and she was uh, she was trying to multiply by going to this conference. So I'm just going to read through these takeaway points. Um, I told three stories. I told, uh, of course, I told the biblical story, and then I told three stories from my experience. One was about how to use preach and heal strategies to empower other missionaries, missionaries that, that maybe have no healthcare background, and so they want to care for the poor people and they care for the, the needy, but they don't really feel confident or, or competent to do that. And so that's one thing that you can do is to help missionaries. And then the other thing that you can do is to empower nationals. If you get there to a place out in the middle of the Sahara Desert and you find, oh, there's three or four people that have come to the Lord. Rather than trying to learn the language and be the primary you know, disciple maker, it's going to take you four years before you get, get your first person to come to the Lord. You can empower these nationals by modeling to them how to share the gospel and uh, by teaching them how to share the gospel. And then by, by being the bait, going up in the mountains or out in the desert and being the one to get slaughtered for Jesus and do a medical clinic so that they can come around behind and say, do you know why this doctor or this nurse works so hard? They're followers of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus too. All right. And so those are the, uh, and then the last strategy was zero to one. If you got to, you got to learn the language or find a translator and you've got to do the hard work of making that first disciple and then just pour yourself into that person and trust that the, the Holy Spirit in them wants to share the gospel with others. All right, takeaway points. Number one, all three of these were examples of using medical or health strategies to access areas that are otherwise closed to missionaries. Many, many parts of the world are completely open to missionaries. And when it's open to missionaries, disciples from all over the world, they go there and they share the gospel. And the, the gospel will move through those areas. You have been given a very special skill, the skill of healing. Not a lot of missionaries have this. So we need to be working in areas where we can utilize this skill, where no one else can, or we can empower uh, national missionaries that maybe already speak the language that don't have this skill. But please focus on uh, unengaged, unreached areas uh, where missionaries aren't allowed, but you could get in as like a humanitarian aid worker. Next takeaway point, be intentional about making disciples. If you think I'm going to go in as a healer and then God's going to make Christians and you don't really do the intentional uh, things like sh praying for disciples, sharing the gospel, teaching others to multiply, you'll never get a multiplying indigenous church. So you have to be intentional about it. It's got to be the number one thing in your mind. You've got to think with a spiritual perspective and think, I got to get people into heaven, you know, among this people group and uh, be very intentional about sharing the gospel and, and modeling how to share the gospel and teaching others. If possible, work with others as a part of a team. When you're by yourself, you come with your package of skills and your, your spiritual gifts. But when you work with other people, then you've got complementary spiritual gifts and complementary skills. And we found this is the most effective way. Um, you can go in there now. You can be the healer on the team. And that brings a whole new dimension to the things that that team can do to engage an unreached people group. And then the last thing is just like I've been saying over and over, whenever possible, use your medical skills to empower others to multiply. All right, that's my talk, and it is now time for questions. And if you would like a copy of the book, Preach and Heal, which has you know some more specific strategies, or if I can answer your questions, please write me at chuckandmichelle at gmail.com.